The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu. Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm your host, Ray Offenheiser. For the last three weeks, we have watched helplessly and in horror as bombs rain down on residential neighborhoods across Ukraine. Its citizens huddle in subway stations and millions flee toward the Polish border. War is hell wherever it's fought, no matter how large or small the weapons. Homes vanish, safety is whatever shelter one can find, and survival depends on wits and luck. The things we take for granted are suddenly no longer available. No water, no food, no medicine, no shelter, no power, no internet. Few of us have lived this experience, but for millions across the world, in Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, and now the Ukraine, this is their reality. We are all in our own way praying for an end to this nightmare, for the Ukrainians and for all those who live this reality, and we shudder at the thought that this war could spin out of control into something far more ominous. Today, I want to look beyond the daily video feed of frontline footage of battle and humanitarian flight and focus on the public health consequences, immediate and long-term, of all we are witnessing. We have seen too much of this kind of bloodshed and mayhem in recent years, yet we seldom reflect upon what it really means for the physical and mental health of those who are its victims or its witnesses. What does it mean to be exposed to the sights, sounds, horror, deprivation, fear, and trauma of this reality? What are the wounds of war, both visible and invisible, that endure? What are the rules of war that should enable a broad-scale humanitarian response? Are those rules being observed now in Ukraine? As Americans, we insulate ourselves from this reality, even though we are deeply implicated, both directly and indirectly, in many conflicts across the globe. 9-11 was one moment when war broke through our protective shields. While we feel protected, we are surrounded every day by men and women who have served our country and carry their own health burdens quietly in our midst. My guest today is Dr. Barry Levy, who for many years has studied the health impacts of war. Dr. Levy is a physician and epidemiologist. He is an adjunct professor of public health at Tufts University School of Medicine. He previously worked as an epidemiologist at the CDC, a professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and a director of programs and projects in international health. He also served as a president of the American Public Health Association. Dr. Levy has edited 20 books, including two editions of War and Public Health with Dr. Victor Seidel. And he has also authored the book From Horror to Hope about the health impacts of war, which will be published by Oxford University Press in April. I first met Barry in my previous role as president of Oxfam America a role which took me into the midst of humanitarian crises in war zones across the world over 20 years. We share a deep personal and professional concern for the plight of those displaced by war and by natural disaster, which is obviously the focus of our conversation today. Barry, welcome. I'm delighted to have you with us. Great to be with you, Ray, and with your listeners. So before we begin, I think it's important to acknowledge that we're recording on March 14th, and obviously the situation in Ukraine is highly fluid. So by the time you may hear this, the situation on the ground could change dramatically. I just offer that as a caveat. So Barry, while I want us to focus largely on having you interpret what we're seeing in Ukraine, I'd like to begin with your story. You did not begin your career in medicine with a focus on conflict and its public health impacts. So I think maybe a good place for our conversation to start is for you to share a bit of your personal history in medicine and um, maybe a bit about the journey that took you to focusing on the health consequences of war. What brought you into this particular domain? Well, I trained in both internal medicine and in public health. Throughout medical school, even when I was pre-med at uh, Tufts many years ago, and then medical school at Cornell, I wanted to do more than simply clinical medicine. I wanted to be looking at issues that affected larger populations and the role that I and others could play in addressing uh, broader social issues. And two things happened in the early course of my medical career that got me interested in war. In 1980, I worked for a couple of months in a Cambodian refugee camp in Thailand. 
There were over 100,000 people in this uh, camp. They had endured and survived the uh, four years of horror and terror under the uh, regime of, the, of Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge regime. It was a genocide in which a million and a half Cambodians or more had died. And these were some of the people who had survived that genocide. And so that experience, uh, working with uh, people helping to treat and uh, prevent diseases in the refugee camp, opened my eyes to the horrors of war and genocide. And then about 10 years later, shortly after the Gulf War, a number of us uh, working in public health felt that there needed to be some attention to the adverse uh, health consequences of that war. People may recall that the Persian Gulf War was a very popular war in a certain sense. The United States and the coalition of about 40 countries had uh, fought this war to force Iraq out of Kuwait. Iraq had invaded Kuwait, and this was a war to, in response to that. And so it was, it was a very popular war, if, if any war could be popular. That was, it was a popular war in a certain sense. But yet many of us felt that there were adverse health consequences, particularly to Iraqi non-combatant civilians. As a result of my interest and that of others in that war and the adverse health consequences, organized a, a session at the American Public Health Association meeting and talked about those adverse health consequences. That led to, ultimately led to a book that Vic Seidel and I edited with about uh, 20 contributors, and then another edition of, of the book about 10 years after that, and a large number of presentations and papers in uh, medical and public health journals about the adverse health consequences of war. So it was both the, the working with Cambodian refugees in the early 80s and uh, reacting to the Persian Gulf War in the early 90s and then into the 2000s that got me more directly involved in this issue. As I noted maybe in the introduction, you're about to publish your third book on the health consequences of war. And maybe you could just describe in broad strokes, what did you try to accomplish in the first two? And what are you trying to convey in, with this third publication? Well, the first two were books that I co-edited with my long-term uh, colleague, uh, Vic Seidel. These were multi-contributor books where we gathered together uh, 20 experts in various aspects of war, uh, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, uh, relief efforts, malnutrition and communicable diseases affecting the people who are victims of war and, and so forth, mental health, certainly. And these were books designed primarily to put the issues around war and the health effects of war on the public health agenda. One of our goals with these books was to get uh, medical schools and, and particularly schools of public health to adopt in their curricula courses and lectures and so forth about, about war and its adverse health effects. That was the purpose of the first two books. This newer book, uh, From Heart to Hope, is designed to reach a broader audience, not only in medicine and public health, but other related fields, international relations, peace studies, political science, but also the, uh, the broader general public about these issues, which are now front and center in terms of what's tragically happening in Ukraine. I don't think I'd be overstating it to say that in some sense, you and Victor Seidel were in some sense launching a new field of research in the public health domain. And, and I guess I wonder, as we look at the field today, where do you think we are and, and are there gaps and is there a need for considerably more research? I'm not sure if we, we were the ones who launched the field, but we certainly stood on the shoulders of many people before us who had done a number of things investigating the health effects of, of war. But you, know, you talk about research, you know, one, one of the things about research is that so much of the research is focused on soldiers, on military personnel, and not on non-combatant civilians who bear the brunt of war. You know, so many of the, the gaps, you might say, in our understanding of and, and doing more research about the health consequences of war really need to focus on civilians. The United States and, and other countries spend a lot of money uh, researching the effects on military personnel for obvious reasons. They want to minimize those uh, consequences. They want to improve treatment of, of those who have been um, wounded in war, survivors of war. There's um, a lot that we don't know, particularly uh, with regard to civilians and particularly in areas beyond uh, malnutrition and communicable diseases and injuries, which are some of the more obvious direct effects of war, but some of the other effects which uh, have not been as uh, carefully researched. For example, not a lot of work has been done in looking at the adverse pregnancy outcomes, the effects on women and their newborn infants uh, as a result of war. There has been some good research, but there needs to be a lot more. Not a lot of research has been done on both chronic diseases being caused by war 
and people with chronic diseases having exacerbation or worsening of their conditions as a result of war. By chronic disease, I mean um, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, and so forth. And the third area that really needs a lot more research is the exposure of people in war, both military personnel and uh, civilians, to toxic chemicals. We've heard a lot about Agent Orange, uh, which has been uh, heavily researched, which was a defoliant used in the Vietnam War. And we've heard a little bit about depleted uranium, which was used to harden shells that were used in uh, the Iraq War and uh, contaminated much of the land area in Iraq. We don't know as much about depleted uranium as we do about Agent Orange. And there are many, many other chemicals that are either released during war or are developed in the environment after war that uh, we really don't fully understand the health consequences of. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the ironies of President Biden, I think it's often put forward that his son might have died from some chemical poisoning in the bases in Iraq or in, in Afghanistan when he was stationed there. Just as Yeah. Family. On that note, I was surprised and welcomed the fact that President Biden uh, devoted two or three minutes in his State of the Union address recently to burn pit emissions. So this is smoke and soot and, and volatile chemicals that arise when military personnel, uh, including U.S. military personnel, burn every, literally everything. I mean, uh, tires, equipment, you name it, and it goes up in smoke and people don't have respiratory protection and uh, they may be exposed not only to the irritant effects of the smoke, but whatever toxic chemicals in the smoke. And of course, not only the military personnel, but the people who live in that area and uh, will be living in that area after the war is, is over. So let's turn now, Barry, to you, the Ukraine and have you help us see the conflict through your eyes. And maybe I could just add a, ask a very broad question is, can you paint a picture for us of what you're observing and what you're feeling about this conflict over the past several weeks? What's kind of you know, riveting you as you kind of watch the imagery that's coming? Yeah, I'd like to do a little exercise with the listeners and you, Ray, uh, for just a moment and ask everyone to close their eyes for a moment and imagine what it would be like to be living in a war zone. It might be Ukraine. It might be a war zone in some other place of the world. And if you've actually lived in a war zone, try to recall what it, what it was like. And I'm going to ask everyone to keep their eyes closed just for a couple of moments now. Pretend that you're actually in a war zone. Imagine it. What do you see? What do you hear? What are you afraid might happen? What will you do when the food runs out? What will you do when the water is shut off? How will you feel when the heat and power is shut off? How will you get help when your phone doesn't work and the internet is down? Where will you go when your home is destroyed? What will you do when your family is attacked? How will you survive? You can open your eyes. This, this is just a little exercise we've done just to kind of put you in the place of what it might be to be in a war zone. But for many people today, including so many people in Ukraine, this is not an exercise. It's the reality of, of living in a war zone. In some ways, unimaginable for those of us who haven't actually been in the midst of a, of a war zone. But that hopefully can give people a little bit of a sense of of uh, what it might be like. You realize that you're making all of these, we're having to answer all of these questions you posed in a very short period of time. And all of them are sort of questions oftentimes we might be faced with, but we we're answering them over a year or two years. People are totally unprepared. I mean, even when Russia had amassed almost 200,000 forces on the borders of Ukraine, people didn't think this was going to happen. Even when the invasion began, people didn't think, well, it wasn't going to reach their city. And uh, as you say, people had uh, very little time to escape if they were able to escape. Indeed, there are a lot of people who to this day have not been able to escape. So the title of your new book, From Horror to Hope, let's begin with horror. How do you treat the question of horror in your book? Help us understand what that means on the ground. I mean, maybe you can maybe build a little bit on the mental exercise we just went through. So let me just say right at the start that each war is different, different circumstances, different country, and so forth. But there are some things that are increasingly, tragically, the same in many recent wars. Increasingly, there are attacks on civilians and uh, civilian infrastructure. Some of the attacks on civilians are indiscriminate attacks, so-called dumb bomb, and a non-precision weapon is, is dropped in an area where civilians live, by the way, in direct violation of the Geneva Conventions. So civilians are attacked with indiscriminate weapons, but they're also increasingly targeted. And this is a strategy of war. It's not only happening in Ukraine, it's been happening in Syria and, and Yemen and uh, many civil wars going on almost throughout the world. The fact that it's occurring in Ukraine now is, um, you know, with, with all the television and other media coverage, brings it front and center. But the, these kinds of attacks on civilians 
have been going on in, in for long time and, and increasingly so in, in many wars. So number one is attacks on civilians. Number two is attacks on infrastructure. And by that, I mean uh, water treatment plants, food supply lines, uh, the electrical grid, and increasingly attacks on hospitals, clinics, and on health workers themselves. A colleague of mine, Len Rubenstein, who's written a book called Precision Perilous Medicine, has uh, cataloged these attacks on uh, healthcare and health workers. This is another stark reality and tragic reality of, of war. So this is another area that I touch on in the book. And a third area that is uh, profound and goes on for years after war is over are the mental health consequences, not only on civilians, but also on the military forces themselves. And of course, civilians, including often young children, end up witnessing the atrocities of war. They experience war directly by seeing uh, family members uh, injured or killed, families are separated. Uh, Mental health consequences of war are truly profound. And so the three of the things that I highlight in the book, although the, the book covers a wide range of issues, are attacks on civilians, attacks on civilian infrastructure, and how that leads to disease with destruction of uh, water treatment plants, uh, destruction of healthcare facilities, and so forth, and uh, the mental health consequences. As you commented, each conflict is different and in terms of not only how it's fought, but and what weapons are used, but also what the rules of engagement might be. And you also mentioned the Geneva Convention, which in you know, some years, some decades ago, was intended to kind of set some rules of engagement for, for conflict in a 20th and now 21st century world. Uh, what, as you're looking at the Ukraine situation, how do you think these rules of engagement are being observed in terms of how the, the war is being enacted by the Russian government at this particular time? Well, there's clear violation of the Geneva Conventions, which in part state that civilians should not be attacked uh, in war, and for that matter, military personnel who are no longer in battle, that is prisoners of war or the wounded, should be treated on both sides of a battle, both sides of a war, by medical personnel. But the Russians are clearly violating the uh, Geneva Conventions by attacking civilians and firing indiscriminate weapons. I think now well over 800 missiles and rockets have been fired into areas where civilians live. And inevitably, there are going to be injuries and deaths among those civilians. So, you know, one of the things that really worries me is the intensity of the war, number one. And number two, the fact that civilians and infrastructure, hospitals, schools, electric power plants, including nuclear power plants, have been uh, attacked. Another thing that, of course, is very upsetting is the huge amount of population displacement, both those people who've been able to get to other countries like Poland and Hungary as well as those who are internally displaced. And bad as the refugee situation is at the border and how overwhelming it is for other countries like Poland and Romania and Hungary, and of course, relief agencies and UN agencies to address the needs of all these people, the plight of the people who are internally displaced within Ukraine is far, far worse than those who actually make it across the border. That's another thing that disturbs me. And of course, uh, we're all concerned that this could lead to a wider war uh, involving other countries. So you mentioned a moment ago some munitions that are being used. I think we're all daily hearing terms that are not part of our everyday sort of uh, vocabulary, cluster munitions or cluster bombs, chemical warfare, tactical nuclear weapons. I know your previous books have explored these issues a bit. Can you tell us a little bit more about these kinds of weapons and what may be their immediate and long-term health impacts? In general, I would say these weapons are designed not only to kill and maim civilians often, but they're part of a strategy of terror to frighten the the population at at large and make uh, the other side surrender. Uh, Cluster munitions, by the way, have been used for a long time. They were first used in World War II. The United States uh, military extensively used cluster munitions in the Vietnam War and to some extent in the Persian Gulf War. U.S. coalition troops uh, used them in Iraq and Afghanistan to some extent, and they're being widely used uh, in the wars and civil wars in Syria and Yemen. These are indiscriminate weapons, and arguably they're indiscriminate both in terms of space. That is, these are, for example, rockets that might have, in effect, a bomb inside the rocket, but within that bomb, there are 50 to 70 or maybe more than 100 bomblets. And so this weapon breaks apart in space, in the air, before it lands. And instead of having only one explosion, there may be 50 or 100 or more explosions from all these bomblets inside the larger bomb. 
So they're indiscriminate in terms of space, but they're also indiscriminate in terms of time. That is, some of the weapons explode as they're designed on, on contact, but others fail to explode. They're so-called duds. And what happens is they lie on the ground. Children or older people come across them, particularly children. They pick them up. They think they might be toys. It explodes in their hands. They may die instantly, or they may be severely injured with uh, one or more amputations as a result of uh, picking up one of these weapons. So these are terrible weapons. Uh, they're designed to cause great harm. There is now a con international convention or treaty on cluster munitions. 110 nations are members. And by the way, neither the United States nor Russia is a member. And as of just a couple of years ago, there were still about 15 countries that were still producing cluster munitions. So these are very horrendous weapons and they're still being used and they've been used for a long time and they have been used in Ukraine. There's some evidence that so-called vacuum bombs have been used. These are sort of two-stage weapons that in the first stage create like a huge gasoline mist and then the second stage explodes that mist so that there's a huge explosion maybe a thousand feet across causing a great deal of destruction and um, death of people nearby chemical weapons i mentioned that part of the title of the book from heart to hope is hope and you know i know it may be hard to find hope in the midst of a war like this but if you step back and take a look at the bigger picture, chemical weapons and the control of chemical weapons is actually a very big success story. There's a international convention on, on chemical weapons. Most countries, uh, including the United States, have destroyed all or virtually all of, of their stocks. And there's a relatively few countries that are still deploying uh, chemical weapons. Russia has deployed them, or at least Syria has deployed them in a war where Russia has supplied material help in many ways. One of the things that has not, not been thought of as much is uh, the fact that cyber attacks could occur. These could indirectly cause a lot of uh, death and, and destruction by uh, bringing down electrical grids, water treatment plants, healthcare systems, and so forth. There's a lot of scary things with regard to the type of uh, munitions and uh, attacks that are taking place. So maybe just to build on that slightly, are there any particular worrisome patterns you're observing in this conflict in terms of scale or types of munitions being used and how they're being used that are very particular to this situation? I think the main thing I take away from what's happening is, in answer to your question, is the intensity of attacks, much of it by missiles and rockets, into civilian areas, including preventing civilians from fleeing, even uh, along uh, what had been thought of as, as uh, safe corridors for passage for those people who wanted to get out of their cities and uh, maybe even get across the border into Poland or Hungary or other countries. I think the sheer intensity of the attacks on civilians is something that's very disturbing. Ukraine is a country the size of Texas with a population greater than the population of California. So it's, it's a huge place. And it's hard, certainly in the midst of, of the war, and the uh, only the, the pieces of information that we're able to receive in the media, it's hard to get an overall sense of what's happening throughout the country. There may be some areas that are relatively unscathed. Of course, a lot of the attacks are in the heavily populated areas and cities. We don't know what's happening in the rural areas. But it's of great concern that there's been such intensity of attacks directed at, at civilians and even at ambulances that are going to pick up the wounded. I can't even find the right words to describe how, how tragic it is. And even the bombings proximate to hospitals. I mean, in, in one case, uh, I think that maternity hospital, there was a photograph of a 30-foot deep missile hole that was left after the, that the primary missile sort of landed, which is quite extraordinary by any standard, I think. And right. I think your point on density of the population, I think it's interesting when we're looking at the refugee population, it's now up to 2.7 million, I think, and, and it's increasing daily. But the internally displaced population is currently probably in the, in the order of 40 million people that we have to worry about that are potentially internally displaced. And we haven't even gotten to the point of thinking about what the humanitarian needs of that they might have. One of the things I just want to interject right here, there's something that I know you're aware of, and it's called, I think it's called psychological numbing. And there are other terms for it as well. Mother Teresa once spoke about this by saying, when I think of the mass of people who may, may be dealing with some horrendous situation, it's hard for me to act. But if I think of one, I'm taken by I have to do something. And so when you hear numbers of 2.7 million refugees and 
we don't know how many, probably many, many more internally displaced people uh, still within Ukraine. It's hard to fathom. It's hard to connect on a human basis. When you see there was uh, the picture of taken by, a, I think, a New York Times reporter about a week ago of a family, a mother and two children, and perhaps the father as well, who were on one of these escape routes, and they were attacked by a bomb or a missile. And that picture, I think a lot of people were able to connect with that picture because it was a family. It was individuals who were suddenly killed in the midst of their lives while they were trying to escape. And so at some level, it's very difficult for, for, I think, for most of us to relate to the large numbers on a person-to-person basis. But sometimes if you just hear the description or see a picture of somebody who's been killed or affected, it's it's a whole different thing. I heard an interview on one of the uh, media reports uh, the last few days of a woman who was, she and her husband were crawling through the, far, they had escaped their home in Mariupol and they'd gotten to the forest and they were crawling through the forest, trying to avoid the uh, Russian military who are hiding behind the trees and so forth. Just that image, or as you say, the image of the children and the women who were injured and, and killed at the maternity and children's hospital in Mariupol the other day. I mean, it's overwhelming when you recognize, when you make that human to human connection and you can see the tragedy. I think we have to appreciate all the journalists who are on the ground uh, doing what they're doing and providing the images and providing the reporting and uh, realize I sometimes worry about how they're going to get out of harm's yeah, way. Oh, absolutely. At least one has been killed so far. So, Barry, what do you think readers might take away from your new book that's immediately relevant to the case, the UK case, case, if I can put it that way? A lot of what we've already said, there's a range of health impacts. You know, some populations who are more vulnerable than others. For example, we haven't spoken very much today about the subgroups of the population, clearly mothers and children, but also older people, disabled people. In many wars, indigenous peoples bear the brunt of the health consequences. Some of the takeaways are the the various impacts on civilians and civilian infrastructure, vulnerable populations, the important role that displacement plays in affecting people's physical health but mental health and how displacement of populations, both across borders and within their own countries as internally displaced persons, has a huge impact on uh, their health and well-being. The book also provides a framework about the uh, Geneva Conventions and uh, other international conventions that bear on the human consequences, the health consequences of war. And one of the things that the book is designed to do is to engage everyone in ultimately addressing not only preventing the health consequences of war, but preventing war itself. I know in the midst of this war, it's hard to see any hope whatsoever. It's hard to see how each of us can make a difference. But indeed, there are opportunities to assist some of the refugees, to contribute to organizations that are working to build peace. When a war like this occurs, it's it's hard to see that so many positive things have happened in recent years of slowly building peace in nations that have been at war in the past, in creating the international infrastructure through treaties, through human-to-human, citizen-to-citizen connections that gets built up over many, many years. There are many positive things that are taking place. And an important takeaway or important message of the book is to engage the reader in getting involved in some way in helping to either prevent adverse effects of war or to help prevent war itself and to build peace. And I know, um, Barry, you're in Boston, where I, you know, a good example of that is was the International Physicians Against Nuclear War organization that got started many years ago. I think one of our Notre Dame alumni, I think Jim Mullen, was um, part of that network and along, I think, with Victor Seidel and, and others. I think about that organization quite a bit <laughs> at the current moment. I was briefly executive director of that organization in the 1990s, and so I'm very familiar with it. The International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, one of the important things that they did, and, and a forerunner of that organization, Physicians for Social Responsibility, going back to the early 1960s, when uh, Vic Seidel and, and uh, Bernard Lown and Jack Iger and others wrote papers about what a nuclear attack would look like on an American city, uh, Boston or New York or Washington or any large city in the United States, what they concluded and what they demonstrated very clearly is how no amount of medical care, no amount of evacuation after a, a nuclear attack could save people. There was no way you could manage attack or provide medical care to the people affected. And so the emphasis clearly had to be on on prevention. In 1985, the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War won the Nobel Peace Prize 
for their work, particularly in demonstrating that fact that nuclear war, you can't respond medically to it. All the effort really has to be on prevention. And particularly now when the war is going on in Ukraine, it's important to remember that an important part of of that uh, success of that organization even to the present day, is the partnership between the United States and the then Soviet Union and the, and the partnership between the United States and, and Russia. That is, doctors and nurses and scientists working together to avoid the unthinkable, and that would be a, a nuclear war. One of the concerns with the current situation is just that, is that through, if uh, the use of uh, even tactical nuclear weapons was not intended, there are so many, once you put countries on high alert, There are so many opportunities for miscalculation, misinterpretation, human error that we could actually stumble into a nuclear war. That's very concerning. I know that's on a lot of people's minds these days. And I want to turn now to something that you and I have on and off talked about over the years is humanitarian crises and how we have to respond to them during a conflict and then respond to them in the aftermath. And obviously, um, as we're seeing, and as you just commented, we're seeing the bombing of these residential areas across Ukraine. There's some 2.7 million uh, refugees already, largely women, children, elderly, sick, disabled. They've already crossed the borders into Poland and Romania. Those numbers could double in the next week. And tens of millions or more, I think, are sheltering in their homes, unable to access safe humanitarian corridors. Or if they are trying to access them there, they're under great risk. So this is, I think, being said, I think, publicly, this is becoming rapidly the largest humanitarian crisis in Europe since World War II. Let's jump into sort of uh, what this actually means kind of real time in terms of trying to get access to provide this humanitarian and what the scale and, and nature of it has to be. So maybe the sort of uh, the opening questions here is what needs to be done to provide humanitarian assistance and what are the major health needs in Ukraine at present? What should be the international community's focus in supporting adequate humanitarian relief? It's on, on several d- different levels, depending on the specifics of a situation, but people's basic needs th- need to be met. And that's food, water, heated shelter, electrical power, and availability of medical care. But in the immediate, the immediate things are, are food and water. People cannot survive for more than three or four days without water. I've heard reports of people going into in eastern uh, Ukraine of uh, going into their opening up their water heaters in order to access water. I mean, there, there is no water in many places. The Russians have shut off the water or destroyed the the water mains such that people cannot access water. So that's an immediate concern is water. Water, and of course, it's still winter there. So it's heated shelter. And many people, of course, have been forced out into the cold with nothing. And as you know, from your work for many years with Oxfam, that just establishing and keeping open the supply lines is very uh, challenging. I don't know if you want to share a little bit of your own experience about that, but I mean, it, you have to improvise with the actual situation and make difficult decisions on the fly and try to, to uh, do it as good as you can with the resources, the opportunities for supplies, uh, supply lines that you, you have. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the most dramatic case I could, I could sort of sum it up would be Afghanistan right after 9-11 when there was a, internally a, a food crisis and food supplies weren't getting across the border because bombing had begun and the food supplies were drying up in Afghanistan. And, and we did something we'd actually never done before is we called for humanitarian pause in the bombing, which did not make us popular with the Bush administration and um, Cheney and Rumsfeld at the time. I think we were applauded by the Quakers, but didn't have a lot of other company beyond that. We had evidence that water food program supplies were running out, even though they were to some degree in denial about that, until we actually sort of pointed out trucks weren't getting across the border. And then the administration made a major shift and started moving food supplies into Uzbekistan from the north. And it kind of gave some relief. But it was all about supply chains and supply lines internal to the country and how you could meet those depleted supplies in, uh, in the midst of conflict. But it's not, as you know well, it's not often just about food. It's about a lot of other things. I guess the other thing, the immediate needs are, are food and water. And at the next level, if there's some degree of stability and there's some stop in the shooting, of course, is, is medical care, psychosocial support, and not only medical care for the people who are injured, but think of all the people, for example, with diabetes who are on insulin, who don't have a way of bringing their insulin with them necessarily, or a way of refrigerating it if it needs to be refrigerated. All the other people who are dependent on their medications to stay alive and avoid the serious complications of their of their chronic diseases. So it's First of all, I mean, is this, as you say, establishing the supply lines, doing some assessment as to where the needs are, and, and throughout this, uh, doing some triage, as you would like in an emergency room. It's really an emergency country, in a sense. Where is the need greatest? Where can you make the most difference with the available supplies? 
and uh, certainly working towards hopefully a ceasefire where there could be a more stable situation to meet people's needs and, and to allow those who want to leave to leave and support them in doing so. I think this discussion about accessibility, which is in some sense, again, something under the Geneva Conventions, I think is provided for yes. in terms of humanitarian corridors is something that really needs to be upped in terms of even the negotiations going on, even if it isn't immediate, immediately lead to a peace agreement. Let's turn particularly, I mean, I know you, one of your things in focusing on health is concerns about in health infrastructure. Let's turn now maybe to these targeted attacks on health facilities. We've already seen, I think, a variety of indiscriminate bombings of health facilities. And um, these systems are clearly already under threat. What should combatants be observing in terms of protecting this basic health infrastructure? It seems like maybe already crossed some red lines in, in the case of Ukraine and with regard to the status of the health infrastructure and actually maybe even the targeting of that health infrastructure. It appears that these have been conscious, premeditated, planned attacks on hospitals, clinics, and of course, you know, schools and nuclear power plants and so forth. The military forces are getting their instructions from the generals and, and from uh, Vladimir Putin. And it's unclear what's going to stop this. I mean, medical facilities are clearly marked. But by the way, as I said before, this is a trend that's been going on for, for a while. This is not the first time that military, that uh, healthcare facilities have been attacked. So hopefully world pressure can uh, bring about a change. But this is a very dire situation. I think two things here. The more that these attacks are documented... And the more that people who are responsible face consequences for what they've done, the more likely this will end. As I mentioned earlier, Leonard Rubenstein, who's studied this extensively and had set up a, a safeguarding healthcare coalition to address this issue, they've identified something like 4,000 such attacks in the last four or five years. And I think only one case was a perpetrator brought before the International Criminal Court, and that court was this, and that case was dismissed. The impunity can no longer go on. People are getting away with doing this, and to the extent that this continues, it will not stop, I don't think, until those who are planning these attacks and carrying them out are brought to justice. I mean, I think there have been multiple attacks in Syria and the multiple attacks in Yemen, and even the United States actually claimed, you know, there was a case in Afghanistan where there was an accidental bombing of a at least that was a claim from the U.S. government, accidental bombing of a, a Doctors Without Borders a facility in northern Afghanistan. By the way, that's featured in our book. We have a, a photograph of that. And that was a clearly marked hospital. And all the coordinates were shared with the U.S. Army or U.S. military before the bombing took place. So it was, uh, Right. And in fact, some people there. fear that uh, the coordinates are being shared. The military who's doing the attacks are getting a hold of these coordinates and are, are consciously uh, attacking these facilities. It's horrendous. It needs to be brought to greater attention. Uh, the pressure of the international community needs to be brought to bear. I mean, I think all your points about looking after the uh, the infrastructure as, as much as one can under these circumstances and thinking about people with these special health needs is really important, and also the reporting and publicizing of attacks. But for groups say, like Doctors Without Borders that are trying to kind of around the edges, get in there and do emergency um, health support, what does that mean, actually? How much can one do when one has to be that mobile in terms of any meeting any kind of health needs? You're sort of you're doing health on the run, so to speak. It's very important. In fact, we feature in our book, we have a number of profiles of very inspiring, mainly health professionals in, in terms of the work that they're doing in treating people and in working for the prevention of the health consequences of war. I think Doctors Without Borders does great work. I mean, that needs to go on uh, alongside of the other work in terms of assuring that there's safe water and uh, public health services and people getting adequate and food. Uh, that's so important. And uh, everything makes a difference. Ultimately, also with, with medical care, one of the important things is further enabling people to help themselves. So providing training, and in fact, in, in some wars like in Syria, there's been cross-border training for a variety of uh, health professionals and others to learn techniques to not only treat the injured, but to provide psychosocial support, to help people uh, with their uh, chronic ailments and so forth. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that need to be done concurrently. And uh, I think the work that Doctors Without Borders and other organizations do in terms of uh, treating the wounded and, and care that they provide is, is uh, the wounded and the sick is vitally important. So we talked a little bit about the internally displaced and what needs to be done to address the needs of this in internally displaced population and across the region. In other words, I, we're going to soon, the numbers are going to grow. I think we've seen in Syria during that conflict, I think there were 9 million, I think there were 5 million refugees and then some 9 to 10 or million internally displaced in Syria. And they couldn't move in any 
different particular direction without actually being victims of open conflict. And obviously in Ukraine, it's going to be, the numbers are going to be much larger. What do you think has to be done or what, what should the international community be focused on in terms of trying to help that, that larger population? Yeah. A lot depends on the fighting that's going on, you know, whether these people are exposed to um, the line of fire, so to speak, where these people are, can they find shelter with others in the community or other communities? Do they have relatives anywhere? But for the large number of them, I mean, they're, they've been displaced from their homes and their communities. They're just trying to survive. And it's very difficult. I mean, if you were to say one thing that would help them would be stopping bringing about a ceasefire even a temporary ceasefire so these people could have an opportunity to seek more more permanent shelter or to or to leave the country if that's what they'd like to do it's it's a very difficult situation the television cameras focus on the humanitarian the refugees already in poland and so forth and that's a very difficult and challenging situation but these the people who have made it that that far most of them eventually will do okay they may never at least in the short term, get back to their standard of living and their security they had before this war began. But for the people who are internally displaced, and there are probably right now many, many more who are internally displaced than those who have gotten across borders, I think it's a very, very difficult situation. There's no easy answer. Let's look a little bit beyond the current conflict for a moment. And you know, it's unclear, obviously, how and when this conflict is going to end. But however it ends, there's going to be deeper health costs to be borne probably for multiple generations. And you talked about the immediate needs of these people but uh, in Ukraine, but what needs to be done to provide for the long-term public health and medical needs of the population? In other words, let's assume that there is a an end to this. A lot depends on the circumstances of how this ends and uh, who's in control, what's the status of Ukraine, and, and to what extent aid organizations and other countries can provide aid within Ukraine. Uh, there are a lot of unknowns. Let me just add that a lot of the health problems also occur during the aftermath of war. The moment the war is over, of course, the health problems don't end and the threats don't end. It's about, again, providing, doing triage in a sense, providing for the most immediate needs and then step by step trying to rebuild the healthcare system, rebuild society, set up mechanisms for reintegrating people, rehabilitating communities and nations, setting up mechanisms for you know, reconciliation, so-called truth and reconciliation commissions that have occurred in many countries with uh, usually some benefits benefit, setting up ways to maintain the peace, rebuilding society in so many ways. So, I mean, there's a lot of things to be done to build peace and set up mechanisms so this doesn't happen again. Yeah, and I think probably in the short term, there's going to be these needs, I think, really to think about making sure the, the population is fully disarmed in one instance. The guns hang around long after the, uh, the peace treaty is signed sometimes. And so you end up having sort of random violence of, of all sorts having to do with vengeance killings and just the fact that people yeah. have been soldiers yeah. and, and now have to find a no, new way to make a living. Let me just interject one thing here, and it was remiss for not talking about it earlier, and that's gender-based violence. Women are raped, women are physically and sexually attacked, children are abducted, and so forth. And this has been a major problem. There's a woman named Christina Lamb, I think a journalist from the UK, who wrote a book called our bodies, their battlefield, or something to that effect recently. And it's a landmark book that that documents how rape has been used, just like the attacks on infrastructure has been sometimes used, often used as a strategy of war to terrorize the population, not only to highness crime of, of, of rape, but also to terrorize and scare the entire population. And so it's hard to determine to what extent that's occurred in the Ukraine war, but it, it has been a feature of many wars and as something that uh, needs much more attention and, of course, to, to be stopped and, and the victims to be provided for. Well, one of the things you mentioned earlier, which I think is one of the invisible costs or impacts of, of war, is, is sort of the mental health question and how, you know, the trauma of war kind of has a lasting effect on people. Can, can you give us some sense of how to think about mental health issues related to war and conflict? Obviously, soldiers on the front line, for example, they've got direct exposure to combat. So they have a particular kind of experience, while families behind the lines have a different kind of experience that's a little bit more indirect, but none, probably, depending on the nature of it, no less wrenching or traumatic. And in the case of a rape, for example, that has, that has lasted scarring effects in terms of mental health, right. um, even though that may take place behind the lines. 
How do you see these differences and how do they affect the mental well-being of, of individuals who've had these experiences? The mental health effects are the consequences are both short term and, and long term. And they can go. And, and in fact, they do often go on for many years after conflict has ended. And you're right to say that the experiences of military personnel may be different from civilians in many wars. Military personnel, depending on the circumstances, may be forced to kill people. They they witness their own fellow soldiers being killed or maimed. There's all kinds of uh, things that they witness in the, in the heat of war. In a certain sense, they have been trained or at least um, you might say socialized to uh, prepared for that to some extent. The civilians have not. And often, as we were saying earlier, war comes suddenly. Families are suddenly separated as they are being separated in, in Ukraine, maybe never again to see other members of the family. Children are exposed to witnessing attacks, seeing family members uh, killed or injured. Sometimes uh, children themselves forced to become child soldiers. Again, it's hard to describe the right words of how how frightening it is for civilians, especially for children, but for everyone who've been uh, living through a war zone and have suffered uh, in many ways. And these are uh, both immediate and long-term effects, uh, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. When they've looked at the uh, military uh, troops in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, U.S. and coalition soldiers in the range of 20% have had diagnosed a PTSD or other serious mental health problems. The numbers indeed may be larger. Civilians have not been adequately studied. There may be even larger numbers with more severe consequences among civilians. So this is a major problem. It's often overlooked by you know, the people who count up the number of injuries and the number of deaths. Sometimes there isn't any easy way of counting up the number of people who are have been affected uh, mentally and, and scarred for life. I mean, people lose their lives, their homes, their communities, members of their families, their professions, uh, their lives are uh, altered forever. So while we focus on the health impacts of war inside Ukraine, should we also be considering to some degree what some of the health impacts might be beyond Ukraine? What are likely impacts of the war in Europe and maybe globally as a consequence of you know what you're seeing yeah. in Ukraine today? Well, one of the things that's just beginning to get some attention in the media, two issues. One is uh, food. Ukraine and Russia together provide about 30% of wheat exports and, and a large percentage of corn exports throughout the world. And particularly the exports coming out of Ukraine are going to be substantially affected. So this means that other countries, and the impact I think is probably going to be greatest in the low-income countries in the global south, in places like Africa and South America and South Asia, because the food is going to be more scarce, the price of food is going to be higher, there are going to be food shortages, there could be food riots. From a health perspective, there's likely to be more malnutrition. And along with malnutrition, particularly among children and pregnant women, there are adverse health effects. I mean, children are more prone to infectious diseases and so forth. So effects on food production and food export by Ukraine and to some extent by Russia exporting food is going to be felt by other places in the world. And again, these are things that may be happening out of sight of the television cameras and social media, but are going to have on an aggregate basis uh, a profound effect. The other thing, and this is also hard to measure, is increased military budgets, maybe even throughout the world. Almost overnight in the last week or so, Germany doubled its military budget. And I suspect that that's going to happen with other Western European countries and countries in Central and Eastern Europe as well, and maybe even countries throughout the world. This war will lead us on another arms race, but not only between Russia and the United States and, and China, but maybe throughout the world. And so when countries have limited amounts of their national budgets are finite amounts of money to the extent they're putting more and more into military expenditures, there'll be less and less for uh, health, for education, for the social safety net. So again, this is going to be a little hard to measure its effects on health, but it may be uh, more profound than anyone uh, recognizes. One of the things, by the way, I do in the book is I put together a chart of the relationship between health and military expenditures in uh, about a dozen countries. And it's interesting, the two countries that have the, you might say, the best ratio between health and military expenditures among the major countries in the world are Germany and Japan. And uh, it's kind of ironic after there being the enemy, so to speak, in, in World War II, how uh, those countries, at least up to the present time, have put proportionally much more money into health in relation to military expenditures. 
Yeah, and your point on food insecurity, I mean, I think there was, uh, in 2008, there was a major heat wave in Russia, and particularly across the Ukraine, that actually undermined the wheat crop. And the uh, global price of uh, wheat went up enormously, increasing bread prices across the world. And I think even this morning, there was a prediction by one commentator that uh, bread prices could go up by sort of experience a 50% inflation in price over the coming months. Let me mention one of the, two other things very briefly, and they're very important, but I just want to include in the conversation. One is COVID-19. You know, all this is happening in Ukraine. I looked at their the spikes of the um, timeframes of their their waves, of, and, and they're now at the bottom of a wave, if you believe the data of COVID-19. But the fact that uh, people now are, are, you know, there's no social distancing, there's no mask wearing, there's no ongoing vaccination program. So COVID-19 ongoingly within in Ukraine and among the refugees who are leaving Ukraine is a major issue. And the other is climate change. You start talking about food production and so forth, and that climate change may indeed be a factor in causing wars and conflict in other parts of the world. But in climate change, we start talking about food shortages. You can't have that discussion. We can't have that discussion without at least mentioning and acknowledging the role that climate change is having, as, as you just said, uh, with uh, droughts and heat waves and so forth. It's amazing how a war can drive everything else off the front page of the, of the newspaper in terms of, of concern about the, right. these critical issues. So, Barry, your book ends with a discussion about preventing war and promoting peace. And uh, maybe you might want to comment a little bit on what does a public health perspective sort of really offer in terms of how we might think about preventing war and promoting peace? And again, I know it's hard to uh, have this discussion in the midst of, of a war that looks hopeless in so many ways. But if we take a step back and look at a bigger picture, there has been a lot of progress. And I've taken from what's worked in many places, and I take, take a public health perspective, I put forward an approach and is really echoing what so many other people have said in terms of how do you go about preventing war and promoting peace. And I, I think there, there are three pieces of this. One is finding ways to settle disputes without violence. And, you know, there are some things we can learn about preventing violence from the way we, uh, we have successfully prevented the spread of many communicable diseases. In fact, there's evidence to say that violence spreads a little bit like, in fact, a lot like communicable diseases spread. I have a colleague of mine named Gary Slutkin came back from Somalia after working there on TB for many years, came back to Chicago and started drawing maps of gun-related violence and came to the conclusion, and others have, have, have agreed with this, that the way violence, gun violence spreads in cities in the United States is a little bit like or a lot like the way communicable diseases spread. And so he has actually set up an organization called Cure Violence Global that has taken what we know about the spread of communicable disease to use it to preventing the spread of violence. And that's, of course, not the only approach, but but one basic, his and his organization's approach to preventing violence and, and set, settling disputes nonviolently is not the only approach, but clearly settling disputes nonviolently is, is a key part of this uh, sort of tripod of, of uh, approaches. The second is to address the underlying causes of war. In Ukraine, we have naked aggression by Vladimir Putin and, and Russia. But in many other places, there are other underlying causes that can be addressed that can make war less likely. And by the way, starting with militarism and the buildup of armaments and so forth. But poverty, socioeconomic inequalities, poor governance, ethnic animosities, even environmental stress, these are often underlying factors, and we're talking about climate change a moment ago, that contribute at least partially to the start of, of, of war. And so addressing those underlying causes. And then finally, developing an infrastructure for peace. How do you build civil society? How do you support and uh, strengthen the rule of law? How do you set up institutions where people have a say in the decisions that affect their daily lives? All that is vital to building an infrastructure for peace, including involving women in the process. You know, it's it's often the men who bring about the war. And unfortunately, it's, it's often the men who are at the peace table trying to set up the, the mechanisms to maintain peace. It's been shown over and over and again that to the extent that women are involved in the peace process and in, in setting up the infrastructure for peace, uh, the peace is more likely to be stable and, and lasting. So those three elements, so settling disputes without violence, addressing the underlying causes of uh, conflict, and developing an infrastructure for peace 
that's the way I end the book. And actually, the last sentence in the book is, how will you get involved? So the real, perhaps the ultimate message of the book after people read it is, what can I do? What can I do to help prevent war? What can I do uh, directly or indirectly to efforts to minimize the likelihood of war? And what can I do to help be, build peace Starting in my own community, in my own country, what can I do in terms of reaching beyond to help uh, establish and strengthen peace? I think there some years ago there was an organization that again was created in Boston called Women Waging Peace, and this sounds like your call to action is people waging peace, <laughs> and uh, and calling for more diplomacy as an antidote. And the title of your, of your book obviously is from horror to hope, and obviously we're witnessing all the horrors of of this war on video every day. Perhaps a good place to close if on this conversation, Barry, is maybe to sort of allow you to say, you know, where do you see hope as we're sort of looking forward to the future? I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't see hope. You know, and I wouldn't be here speaking with you today if, if I didn't see hope in all this. And I know it's it's difficult to see in the midst of war. But you know, some of the things I highlight in the book is the fact that, indeed, many disputes have been settled without violence. There have been increasing efforts to promote human rights and uh, respecting human dignity that have helped to prevent war and promote peace in many places improving humanitarian assistance to minimize the health effects of war, the success of some international treaties. We mentioned briefly chemical weapons and the fact that they might be used in Ukraine. But you know, if we take a, a big, and I know they've been used extensively in, in Syria and perhaps elsewhere, but if we take a look at the bigger picture, the Chemical Weapons Treaty, the Chemical Weapons Convention has been a huge success in not only preventing their use, but having nations destroy, I think it's now something like 99% of all the chemical weapons that existed at the time that the convention came into, into being have now been destroyed. And the promise of some newer treaties, there's a, a, an arms control treaty that recently is an arms trade treaty that limits the sales of, restricts the sales of arms to countries that might use them to attack their own people or arms that might get into criminal networks and so forth. So, And, and then finally, one of the things that my book particularly highlights are the inspiring people who are doing work uh, day in and day out to prevent war and promote peace. I highlight, as I mentioned before, one of the doctors who's worked with Doctors Without Borders for many years, giving up her, her uh, practice in the United States, or at least finding a way to do that part of the year, and then uh, serving with Doctors Without Borders for uh, much of the year. People who are using their, committing to treating uh, people affected by war, and then uh, going on to help prevent the consequences of war. There's a physician in the Democratic Republic of Congo named Denise McGuigi, who for years was treating the women who are victims of sexual violence, who has now become a global advocate for the end of sexual violence, and in fact was one of the winners of the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize. There's a doctor who worked treating Cambodians who were affected by landmines, who ended up doing a study and then doing work that laid the basis for the landmine treaty, which is another success story, a landmine treaty signed 25 years ago, developed outside the UN system, developed by non-governmental organizations working together to prevent the production, the use and storage of landmines. That treaty has also been immensely successful. So there are a number of bright spots that have been occurring. And I think some of the brightest spots are the people who are individually on their own or within organizations working to prevent war and, and minimize its uh, health consequences. So one of the highlights of my period at Oxfam was a 10-year campaign that Oxfam waged along with Amnesty to get that arms trade treaty, sort of prohibiting human rights violators from receiving any kind of arms trade through the UN. And it was quite a long journey with some really interesting adversaries along the way who really wanted to stop that uh, treaty from actually being finally approved. But uh, it was very nice to be at the signing of the treaty when John Kerry signed it at the UN headquarters uh, some years ago. Unfortunately, Barry, we're out of time. So I really want to take this opportunity to thank you effusively for um, this really rich, albeit sobering, conversation about the situation in Ukraine and, and uh, draw deeply on your insights and experience and working around this, uh, these questions of war and conflict. Pleasure being with you and your listeners today, Ray. Thank you for the work that you're doing. So we're all agonizing as we watch the daily updates from Ukraine. The reality is, as we've said, tens of millions of lives have already been turned upside down. Families have lost their homes, livelihoods, and lives. And there's no clear end to, uh, in sight to when this is going to be over. 
Barry, I just want to say, I think you really helped us appreciate the two skit, really the true scale of this suffering and the cost of this conflict now and into the future. And obviously what's going to be needed to respond to the immediate and long-term crisis in the Ukraine. And I think we should probably keep all of these ideas in mind as we think a little bit about how we might individually make a difference and provide some help to the organizations doing the work on the front line in terms of humanitarian relief. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Levy's work and his forthcoming book, From Horror to Hope, which will be released in April, it is available through Oxford University Press and through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and other reputable booksellers. For more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast, visit pulte.nd.edu backslash Global Pathways podcast, or stream or subscribe through your favorite podcast platform. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Oppenheiser, and I'll see you next time. Additional support for the Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keele School of Global Affairs, home to the Pulte Institute and other global institutes, centers, and programs. As Notre Dame's first new college or school in nearly a century, the Keele School places development at the heart of global affairs. Learn more at nd.edu slash global affairs.